Welcome to another episode of It's a Packed Life podcast. I'm your host, Celeste, and today is Friday, July 29th. This is the second part of a series from a interview that I did with my friends Charity and Deb. I've entitled it Love Wins. I was going to do two parts, but then in the editing, I just... I couldn't make myself cut down the last hour. So this is part two of three instead of just being part two of two. I hope you enjoy picking up where we left off last time. It's a Packed Life podcast. Five months prior to getting married, I sat him down and I told him that I needed to figure out my sexuality before I committed to one person. He did not take it well. I hate this man for what he made you do. Yeah. yeah unfortunately, he uh, his ego definitely got in the way. He was not compassionate or understanding. He actually said to me, okay, so you're breaking up the engagement because you think you're gay. Fine. If you don't tell your parents, I will. So I was 19 and terrified to tell. Yeah. Not so much my dad, but I was terrified to tell my mom for a reason. And, uh, it turns out that my, my fears of doing so were valid because she did not take it. Well, I had to sit my parents down and tell them my dad just kind of sat there quietly. And, um, my mom just, I mean, she just started sobbing. It was like, I just took everything from inside of her and stomped on it is basically how it felt. It was the worst thing ever. And for a hot minute, I thought for sure she was going to kick me out of the house. And, um, she cried and she was like, well, you know, these questions came up like, well, what about the, what about Boyfriend. the guy you dated in high school? You loved him and da, da, da. And, um, you know, well, have you even kissed a girl? And it's like, Whoa, you know, I don't like at the time I was so shocked at having to be, to tell them, right. I didn't know how to answer any of these questions. So, we didn't talk for like three days. It was kind of, we just kind of like walked around on eggshells with each other for a while. But then when they found out that this guy was essentially stalking me and everything, um, they pulled me into a room and and talked to me and just, my mom was like, you know, I, I love you. You're still my daughter. And it doesn't make sense to me. It's, it'll be okay. And she was crying. And of course, this you guys all need to understand that this is 1997. There's still not many resources out there. Things had not progressed very well um, in that de- in the 90s decade. There was still a lot of problems. And so my my I mean, mom, people in Hollywood didn't even dare come out at that point did, in time. Exactly. And look what happened to Ellen DeGeneres. She, she lost her career and she lost her career for years and didn't get a job. And so and all representations of gay people that you did see were of absolute tragedy. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so uh, she just said to me, she got, you know, she was like, I'm, I'm just afraid for you. This is not what a parent wants to hear. And uh, I'm afraid that you're going to grow old alone because, of course, the the common conception is that gays and lesbians don't have relationships that are committed. And, and you know, because that's what's portrayed in the media and everything. Well, it was the fear mongering. Right. That was being put out by the religious leaders to yeah. as, as a way of control. Yeah. Yeah, that exactly, you know, and I did get the Sodom and Gomorrah talk by the Baptist 
pastor. That is a you, you actually Maybe lost the relationship yeah. with that family when you came out, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I remember. The relationship didn't stick, um, mostly because I was like, you know what? I don't want to hear any more people throw religion at me. I, I can't handle it anymore. Like I've, I really officially snapped in half and was like, I cannot do this anymore. Like I need to Can, not. I want to take a minute and just say how beautiful it is. The strength that you had inside of yourself <laughs> at such a young age such to a- put yourself first. Yeah, it was. Thank you for that, by the way. I really appreciate it. It's um, I'm sure it didn't feel that way. Um, actually, so shockingly enough, it, it did kind of feel that way because oh, good. For the first time ever, even though I was forced into it by my ex fiance for the first time ever, I was actually standing up for myself and I was, um, you know, I was me, I was like, Oh my God. And then from that moment, it was like, Oh my God, I can. I can be myself, but it was like a re-emerging kind of, because like, where do I go from here? Like what happens now, you know, and how do I begin my life anew Um, completely? So there was a strength, but but there was also a strange fear that came after it. Cause then it was like, now what the fuck do I do? You know, now, like, how do I navigate all this? And so I remember talking to my parents and I was like, they were like, does your brother and sister know? And I was like, yeah, they've known for like ever because I told my brother and sister before I told my parents. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah I didn't I, know I, that either. I had yeah, my that. brother and sister knew before my parents did. And they were cool. Yeah, they were fine with it. They were like, nice oh. work, Jason and Mindy. Yeah, they were like, okay. <laughs> My sister was a little bit iffy about it at first, but she came around pretty fast and was just like, well, as long as you're happy, you know. Um, and then we all decided, you know what? We're just going to let everybody figure it out in their terms. And it worked wonderfully because what ended up happening is the those people in my extended family that were willing to finally accept it. Um, that's when they approached me and said, so is this a thing, you know, are you gay or is this like, or like my roommates, they'd be like, so is this your new girlfriend? I had my uncle walk up to me and say, is this your new girlfriend? And I about fell on the floor and my grandmother on my mom's side, who was a very, very important person in my life. She was standing behind him. And I just kind of looked at him like a doe-eyed, you know, freaking monster. And she goes in her cute little sassy Dutch accent. Um, did you think we were born yesterday? And I was like, <laughs> so I go outside to get a, a breath of air. And my mom goes there now, see, everything's fine. Do you feel okay now? And I was like, can you let me breathe for a minute? Like, you're like processing, processing. Yeah. This happened the four years after I came out to my parents. And so by that time, I had already gone to a couple of years of pride. And by the way, the first time I went to pride, I was so overwhelmed with um, community that I didn't, it was almost too much, too much. And I've heard um, that from a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you go and everybody's willing to be so visible and they're willing to like get in front of a camera and stuff. And here's me. I was like avoiding news cameras to save, you know, as much as I possibly could 
to make sure nobody could possibly spot me in the background, you know? <laughs> Again, um, for all of you younger people, this was way before TikTok. Yeah, way before TikTok. Oh gosh, you guys, this is way before TikTok. This is before we had, I mean, we had MySpace. We did not have Facebook. We, you know, it was um, the internet and social media was brand spanking new. It wasn't even and- called social media yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was it was networking. Yeah, yeah. online <laughs> online networking. Yeah. So yeah, we're Facebook we're, friends networking platform. Yeah. <laughs> like we were. Oh God, we we're a little old, but it's fine anyway. The online yearbook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're the one generation, right, that knew remembers what it was like to live without all this technology and then see it all be born, right? And I and I would say that. Um, as hard as it was for me in those days to be able to be my authentic self and watch as progression has happened with like gay marriage and things like that, which is not something I thought I would see in my lifetime. Right. That's, uh, that's huge. That's huge to be able to live through that and go, I get to be a part of that. And um, it's pretty amazing. And so but it was a hard road. It was a really hard road and not to be cliche, but it does get better. And even after I came out though and started living my authentic life, I was still making shitty ass choices. Like <laughs> I had like during my twenties, I was the serial monogamous lesbian, you know, and I was with some abusive partners and there was like the whole, let's meet at a, you know, we met at a bar and then I'm living with them a month <laughs> later. And oh my God, like some of the choices I made. Well, if you think about the fact that you've been told your whole life that this doesn't really exist. Yeah. And then you meet one out in the wild. Yeah. Like you're going to grab onto that. Yeah. Yeah, and you that's also, exactly what happens. You also don't learn how to date. No, you don't. A lot of times if you are gay and a kid back in the nineties and the eighties. And even before that, you didn't learn how to date. And so when you met someone, you might've moved fast or you made mistakes because dating was just like this weird thing. Like I got married at 19. You don't learn how to. Well, and I'm going to throw in another layer to that because in Utah, the culture around dating and marriage because of the Mormon church, and it's not just Mormons, but Utah in general gets married a lot younger Yeah. because culturally that's what's pushed. Yeah. And so there is an, a very huge emotional lack. Yeah. Because the whole goal, like when you're hanging out with other kids in high school, you're already looking at them thinking, could I marry this person? Yeah. Like you don't, you don't date the way most people in my, as my exposure, as I've been more out in the world, you know, the dating is different. Like in high school, most people aren't thinking about who they're going to marry. But in, in Utah, that's like, it's like all about that. It's like, you're supposed yeah. to be thinking, could I marry this person? If I can't see myself marrying this person, then I shouldn't go get fries with them at Arctic Circle. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's what they teach you and, and yeah. in your brain. And so, and, and it's interesting that you say that and you pointed out because when I started seeing my first girlfriend, I took a lot of those principles without even realizing it with you. Absolutely. And so when that relationship became abusive, and I'm not saying that I'm innocent in any way, shape, or form, I had a lot of issues back then that I was not confronting, you know, no therapy, no pills for depression, nothing <laughs> like that. Um, but she was she was an alcoholic and she was abusive, and things just went south very quickly. That 
part that was taught to me about seeing people was just, was just absolutely destroyed. Cause I was like, you're the person I'm supposed to be with forever because we dated and now we're living together. And like, this is not supposed to come to an end. Well, then I found her cheating on me. And it was like, my whole world came crashing down around me. And, and then I went on the rebound and ended up in my next relationship very quickly. And it was just a constant, it was a constant flow of that through my twenties until I learned finally that that's not the way it's supposed to be. That said though, so then I stopped dating and just wouldn't date for like five or six years. I had a few long distance relationships because honestly they felt safer. Exactly. Because even though we could travel back and forth to see each other, like there were no plans to move the relationship forward. Mm -hmm. It was a safety thing. I could have the relationship and the companionship without worrying about it turning into something deeper you protect yourself that yeah, way. It was, it was self-preservation for sure. And then I ended up with Kim. That whole situation was uh, pretty bad too, but I was with her for five years. Cause I was like, I don't want to start. To de- I don't want to start over again and again and again, you know, but one thing I could definitely say is as a, as somebody that was definitely a serial monogamist, all of those relationships taught me something about what I did and did not want in in future relationships. That's what all of the turmoil, all of the shit, all of the whatever, all of that got me to the point I'm at now. And even with the dissolution (laughs) of my former marriage, which was really, you remember, it was really, really hard on me. It taught me a lot about commitment and also knowing that I get to choose my person each day. I don't have to be with them. I don't need them in my life to thrive because I can thrive on my own. Yeah. But I want to share all of those aspects of my life with another person. And I want them to feel comfortable and safe to do the same with me. Yeah. You know, it's taken, it's been a long, hard, fucked up road, honestly, but I wouldn't change any of it. I don't have regrets. You know, that stuff is in the past. There's nothing I can do with it now, except learn from it and move on. So um, let, I want to, I want to point out here because that is very Buddhist of you Yes, <laughs> and that is where you have landed with your spiritual journey. Correct. Yes. Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism specifically. Yeah. I took refuge a few years ago. Uh, we have a teacher in the United States that his teacher in Tibet said, Hey, go West and teach the Westerners this stuff. And so he now resides in, um, Arkansas. Parthenon, Arkansas, I guess is the place. And he travels. And I actually just recently came out of a weekend long teaching from him. And every time he teaches, it breaks my brain, but it's a healthy thing. So, <laughs> you know, cause it's about forming new habits and reconstructing neural pathways that make it easier for you to live a more healthy uh, life, in, especially when adversity comes along. I wish I had those tools back then, like 20 years ago. But at the same time, I somehow constructed my own little toolbox and I figured out a way to get through it. Yeah. Um, And that was before I started therapy and before I finally landed on a spirituality and a philosophy that works for me. And yeah, I I don't honestly, Celeste, I'll be, I'll tell you right now, um, things were dark for a while and I don't know sometimes how I did it, but here I am. 
I'm really glad you did it. Thank you. So am I. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) Yeah, I am too. I Um, love the fact that when we reconnected and I don't even know how many years it's been now since we reconnected. Holy crap. I don't either. Because when I graduated, when we graduated in high school, I basically like flipped the two birds off and went, <laughs> I, I basically went like, fuck everything about high school. I am done. Like I'm, I've never, I've never been interested in going to a reunion. I've never, yeah. like, I don't give a shit. And all the people from high school that kept trying to send me fucking friend requests online. It was like, no, you didn't care about me back then. Why? Why? We're not going to rekindle a friendship we never had in the first place. Don't send me friend requests. And that's just me. That's just me though. Like don't, yeah. don't try to nose around in my life now, 20 something years later or 30 years later, yeah, um, do the math. you know, and so <laughs> I, I know a decade later, no, just kidding. Um, Five, five people from high school <laughs> in my friends in Facebook that I communicate with online fairly, fairly regularly. And you're one of those people. And I couldn't be happier to limit it to just that because yeah. there's genuine um, friendship there. Yeah. And every time we do like a, our group thing, a zoom thing, you know, um, it's like, we just pick up where we left off and we just shoot the shit and drink and have a good time. And, you know, and I love that. And I can't see that happening with very many other people we graduated with. Um, our lives have just changed so much. (laughs) So much. (laughs) I had somebody tell me that the person that I was at 17 would be so sad and disappointed in who I am today. And I was like, I don't think you knew me as well as you think you did, because I'm pretty sure that if 17 year old me was able to sit down and have a conversation with me, she'd have been like, finally, it all makes sense. (laughs) Same, same. 17 year old me would be like, Oh God, thank you. Right. (laughs) Be like, wait a minute. You're in North Carolina. Yeah, you lived in an RV for a couple of years. I was right. so bad. Yeah. You know? and, and um, going off that same thread, like my dad died, and t- so my marriage, my previous marriage, ended um, in 2017. I was in denial, but it it my divorce was final in 2018, but everything ended in in late 2017. Unfortunately. I lost my dad six months later, very suddenly to a pulmonary embolism. And it, those two, those two things combined destroyed me. It was awful because I wanted to be able to talk to my dad about things that were happening in my life and how hard this was and everything. And, and I suddenly found my life devoid of him. And it was, I went to a very dark place. I went back to work after my dad passed away a year and a half later, I was on attendance probation at work. I was just a hair away from getting fired. I wasn't, I just wasn't doing well. Um, I'm still like, my finances are still fucked up from that period because I just didn't care. I didn't care. I knew I had to make a choice and it needed to be a very dramatic one. So I announced to my family and close friends that I was leaving work for six months. I turned in my two week notice. I withdrew my retirement, which was against everything everybody tells you, right? Leave your retirement alone. Don't do that. You know, over the last decade, I've lost the last three of my grandparents, my father, two young cousins, 
um, very suddenly and um, just, it, it just in a, a marriage yeah. and um, it just finally came to a head and I couldn't handle it anymore. So I'm going to admit for the th- first three months I was out of work, I door dashed all of my meals. Like I never went out and went grocery shopping. The only time I went outside is when I walked my dogs. I let myself be depressed. I owned the fact that I was in a deep trench of grief. And I want to point out because this, I know it, it looked dark and it was a dark space, but you were also extremely compassionate with yourself during that time period. I tried. (laughs) Well, what you presented when we were talking, you know, felt, felt like you were like, I I do think I need to continue to be aware of this because it could go really bad. But right now I feel like I just need to give myself permission to feel everything. Yeah. It seemed to me like it was a very intentional grieving time period for you. Yeah, it was. And it was a way for me to be able to hole up in my apartment and not worry about the consequences of not going to work and not worrying about my family coming after me and saying, you need to do this and this and this and this. And, you know, they always, they, people always say that you find out who your real friends are when things like this happen. Right. And I was very fortunate in that I had like you and Wendy, and I had a few friends that I work with at work that, uh, that were constantly checking on me and everything, which which was nice because I, whether or not I realized it, I needed it. I needed people to be checking on me and making sure that, Hey, I did get out of bed or, Hey, I did open my blinds in my living room and let in some sunlight or, Hey, whatever, you know, Yeah. after about three months, I kind of, I just kind of snapped out of it. Not completely. You never completely do. Right. So it's always there, but I was like, gosh, I'm going to have to go back to work soon. So I, I need to do something. So I'm sitting in a Barnes and Noble one day and I'm reading, imagine that. And I'm reading, um, I'm sitting in one of their cushy chairs and I'm reading a Charles Dickens novel. And I know. Yeah. I don't remember which one was it. It was a bleak house. I was reading bleak house by Charles Dickens. And I just kept thinking, I need to go on an awesome vacation. Where should I go? The light bulb went off and the whole like choir thing started. Oh, like, yeah, (laughs) I need to go to London. Like, why is that even a question? So I drove home, opened up the laptop and the, I mean, I immediately bought a plane ticket for August of 2018 and I did not take anyone with me. I did not invite anyone. I had people trying to invite themselves and I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that would have been me. <laughs> she was like, um, can you just put me in your suitcase and take I me did say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you and a couple of other people. And I remember saying, you know, I love you. Maybe one day, but but no. Like it because I knew that it was going to be an experience that I needed to have by myself. Yeah. Um, in a city that for some reason has screamed at me from across the ocean, maybe because of all the English literature I read or whatever, but I went to London for nine days and it was transformative. You found yourself. I absolutely found myself. I was in Chinatown. I went to one of the little restaurants in Chinatown and I ordered um, an expensive ass meal and everything. And I, and I had a Chinese beer and I sat there at the table and I thought to myself, I wish I could take a picture of this and send it to my dad because he was a foodie. And I just started crying. It was like an emotional release moment where it was like, wherever he happens to be, I'm, I hope that he knows that I'm thinking about him and that 
this trip was just as much for him as it was for me. Yeah. Because I think he would have been ridiculously proud of me for doing this. Yeah. I still, it's one of those things that I'm just like, so I've got this friend, Charity, and she's a total badass. Let me tell you what she did. <laughs> Solo vacation. Yeah. After yeah. quitting her job. And taking out my retirement, being all yeah. sorts of irresponsible. No, but I remember you talking to me when you were like, I think I'm going to do this. I think I'm going to pull this money out. And I mean, am I crazy? Am I, is this a mistake? We were Marco Poloing about this. And I was just like, are you going to be here for your retirement? If you don't do something, you know, we, and we were just talking about, cause it was around the same time period that Corey lost his job. And I finally convinced Corey and Rory that we should sell the townhouse and go live on the road full time. And we were just shattering this, this box of expectations. And it was just this kind of really cool synergy that happened in our group yeah. of friends at that point. I'm so proud of you guys for doing that. That was such a bold move. It was such a bold, it was ballsy. <laughs> it was very ballsy. <laughs> it was, you know, and I think it was a lot harder for Corey mm-hmm. than it was for me because he had taken on the identity and role of protector and sure. provider. And, and I think it's amazing because you had all of those roles as a single person who was, you know, in your forties and had been being the provider, being the caretaker, being the, you know, all of these things. And you did it by yourself. Yeah. You just blew it up. Yeah. Yep. I boarded my two boys, my dogs, and um, and I just went for it. And the funny thing is I get to London and uh, the hotel was like, well, you were supposed to be here yesterday, so we don't have a room for you anymore. So I spent the whole day in um, this, in the lobby of this hotel, um, looking for another place to go and finally found a place. And I got, I got to tell you, my friend, this, this, hotel was like a hundred year old building. Right. Yeah. No elevator. So I had this gigantic fucking suitcase. I'm like hauling up the stairs, like four flights of stairs. I finally got up to the room and it's like the size of my walk-in closet. Right. It's just like, (laughs) and and then the water closet was just tiny and I'm like, I'm not that small. So this is going to be fun. (laughs) So, but you know, the thing is, is my, my attitude about it was okay. I could either be uncomfortable about this or I can look at it and go, you know what? I'm not going to be in this room very often. I'm here to sleep and shower. Who the fuck cares about the size, right? Yeah. Every single day I got up, got dressed. I went out, I hit the tube station and I, the first day, imagine this, I went to the Charles Dickens Museum, which was an old house that he lived in once upon a time. And I saw the Tower of London. I got to see the Thames. I got to walk across so many of the bridges. And for me, it was like stepping into my books that I love so much. And it was remarkable. It was so remarkable that Deborah and I are planning to go and share that experience together over Christmas. So we're going to go, we're, uh, she's been there, um, but she didn't get to see a whole lot of it when she was there. Freddie Mercury's house. (laughs) <laughs> morning yeah. spent the morning shedding tears and leaving flowers at garden lodge and it was amazing yeah <laughs> so cool i actually was on a walk through hyde park and i had just passed kensington palace 
when HR at, yeah, my old job reached out to me and said, Hey, we will, we're, we'd be happy to have you back. So when, when, and I was like, well, I'm in England right now. So I, she goes, what? You were where? And I said, yeah, I'm taking a little stroll through Hyde Park. And they were like, Oh, why did you answer your phone? And I was like, <laughs> It seemed important, okay? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so it was a remarkable experience and it truly was transformative. And it really did help me get out of at least the worst of that darkness so right. that I could go home and function as a human being again. Right. And then I finally started back up in therapy and you know, and everything else. So I've been able to manage that depression and as many financial troubles as I have now, because of some of the decisions I made after my dad passed away, I still wouldn't change any of that because for some unknown, well, it was what I needed at the time, yeah. you know, it was self-care and survival. It, and now I've got this lady and I'm super excited to get married again. And I never thought I would say that. Right. <laughs> I never thought I would say that. I was like, after the mess of the last one, I was like, <laughs> I don't think I could handle that again. You know, it's such it, it for me, making that commitment is such a vulnerable place to be. Yeah. Because I go all in regardless of what's happening in, in our lives. All I've ever wanted is for somebody to go all in with me. And I thought I had that in my last marriage and it turned out I didn't. I had to make peace with that. Yeah. But I have absolutely no question in my heart or my mind that she is, she's all in. And I know that. So <laughs> that's just because I started reading those books. Oh yeah. She's reading, <laughs> she's reading Brandon Sanderson. Well, okay. Yeah. How you know. That's how you know. Yeah. Cause he's my favorite fantasy author. And so she's, I've yeah. read plenty of Dickens already. <laughs> we talked about that on like our, one of our first chats. Yeah. Also, I will say that there's a picture she took of herself on her trip mm -hmm. to London it's outside. Where did you say it is? Hyde Park? You think it's in Hyde Park? Probably Hyde Park, but I'll yeah. have to try and look for it and see if but you can recognize it. On her profile, that was the picture that I was like, I need to talk to this person. When she's, I, she looks so <laughs> genuinely happy in this yeah. picture. And I thought she was camping. So turns out one of those things was true. <laughs> <laughs> The other one we'll get to, but I like, I wanted, I needed someone who was genuinely happy. Yeah. And then charities worked hard to get there. You have to, yeah. if you're 45 in this world and you didn't have to work genuinely hard to be happy, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> or give me three more years. Yeah. Like there's <laughs> no possible way. Yeah. That, like, yeah, I just, I can't imagine because yeah. nobody's 17 year old person would not like everybody's 17 year old person would be shocked at who they are today. If they, if they aren't, have you really been living? Then you haven't learned and you haven't changed. I don't want to be the person I thought I was going to be when I was 17. Mm. I don't. I'm, and I wasn't like a horrible person when I was 17, but I no, but you had no exposure to no, all of the rest of the world. Yeah. I was hiding. I was definitely, you know, I was hiding like in a closet and I was figuring, I figured that getting married just like charity did. I thought getting married would fix it. 
And it did in some ways. I was happy, but I was also incredibly young. And during my marriage, I used a lot of things to, I don't want to say distract myself, but take up my time. I went to 13 years of college, which is so much. It's just really so much. But I went to a lot of school. I was involved in a lot of things and had kids that I was busy raising and was doing that with someone who was a very good friend and who I loved and still do. But all of that allowed me to kind of make excuses for why I wasn't being who I knew I was. Right. For a settle. Yeah. You know, and I never had to come out to my parents or my kids. Everybody who knew my kids grew up knowing that I was bisexual, I thought. And I told my parents, uh, my mom and I had a conversation years ago, but my husband, my ex-husband claimed that he didn't know. And it made for a very awkward conversation in 2016 (laughs) when I just like threw it out there and he was like, you're what? And then it was a pretty fast road downhill after that for him to, you know, and that's okay because he'll be happier with someone who he can be his whole self with, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's safe to be their whole self with him. Yeah. And I kept telling him like when we were, when our marriage was ending, I think he thought that I didn't want, like, I just wanted to leave so badly. And I kept saying, well, you're not happy with me. I don't want you to be with me. If you can't be happy, it makes me unhappy. Like, I don't want to be here, like pretending to be half a person just so that you can be happy when I know it won't make you that. So why don't we just, you know. And is he, is he Mormon? Yeah, we got married in the temple and we're very active members of the church for a very long time. And And the reason I ask that is because in the Mormon church, divorce is seen as a failure. Oh yeah. I thought I was a failure. I thought I was a failure. I went and dropped off my divorce papers. When I got up to the little desk, little counter, Mm -hmm. I handed them to the woman and just started sobbing because... I felt like I had failed my kids. My parents were divorced and I had promised that I would never do that to them. But that was me when I was 19. Right. And by the time you're 40, you have to realize that your kids know when you're unhappy. I learned my children had been having long conversations about when mom and dad get divorced long before I knew we were getting divorced. Like they could tell that something wasn't right. And so for us, part of it, you know, part of the challenge was just like, we had made this promise that was supposed to be for eternity. And there were other things that were pulling on that because we had kind of already, you know, I had been involved with ordained women, which put a lot of strain on our relationship with the church. And was he supportive of you being involved in that? That's a very good question. Before I even submitted a profile, I wasn't part of the organizing or creating of it. Right. But the day that it was that the website was put up, somebody sent the link to me. I wrote my profile. He came home. I said, I saw this thing. It's something I have been waiting for since I started going to church. I really want to be a part of it. And he said, then you should do it. And then when they it went up, I got in trouble with my bishop. A couple of weeks so later. Let's, let's clarify really quickly yeah. what, what Ordained Women was so, and what it was about. It is an organization that advocates publicly for the ordination of women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to the priesthood, which is currently gendered. 
at 12 years old, young men reach the first level, automatically are given the first level of priesthood, and then you can advance from there. And it's the only way for you to serve in a substantial leadership position in the church. It's the only way for you to be allowed to administer sacred rites and blessings and ordinances in the church, except for one ordinance inside the temple that is administered by a specifically ordained woman to other women. And it's that one ordination in the temple that has given so many women hope for so long. Because supposedly, yeah, it, me too. I was one of those women because supposedly what happens in the temple is the closest to what happens in heaven, right? That's right. the way it is framed and taught is the, what happens in the temple is similar to what happens in heaven. So if women can have a priesthood ordination in the temple, which is a representation of heaven, then right. why isn't it happening here? Exactly. And the fact that priesthood ordination has from the very beginning been expansive. It has always, it was exclusive and has always been expanded to different groups throughout the ages. So anyway, so I was part of, I wasn't part of the creation of it, but when they planned the launch, because I was this like picture perfect Mormon woman, I was straight. They thought, yeah. But I was married. I had kids. I was married in the temple. I was in the Relief Society presidency. I was active. My profile picture was me with my family. Like they thought they needed me, somebody like me anyway. And so they asked if I would speak at the launch event. And then after that, I asked Keith, that's my ex-husband. And he said, well, you're already in trouble. Why make somebody else get in trouble? (laughs) <laughs> and I said, that's what I think. So I agreed. Which to for a, which for a Mormon male is very accepting of the movement. And you have to understand he was married to a woman who had not just graduated from college, but had then gone on to get a master's and a PhD and was incredibly politically active. Like I was already this like really mouthy feminist when he met me. So he it's, this is a really good guy we're talking about. Right. But what we learned, what I learned was gradually as I became more involved with ordained women, right. They would invite me back. They found out what my expertise was in and I eventually became part of the leadership and served as the chair for a while was the, and you wrote articles. I wrote, I was, the chief contact person for lots of um, news articles. I wrote all kinds of stuff for them. And um, <laughs> yeah, it turned out that <laughs> she's fangirling. Thank you. <laughs> and so what happened was it turned out that where I thought that we were doing this kind of together, like he was supporting me while I did this because he believed in it for his daughters and for his son, right? A gendered priesthood that puts all the weight of leadership on men is not good for men and boys either. It's just not. Toxic masculinity across the board is toxic for everyone. Yeah, it puts so yeah. like, oh my God, like there's so many reasons. Anyway, so <laughs> it turned out that in 2016, we I came out to him apparently, not realizing that that's what I was doing because I had been more vocal about being bi um, after the Pulse nightclub shooting happened mm-hmm. um, and after the 2015 exclusion policy that the LDS church issued where they were going to not let kids 
who had gay parents be baptized or receive any other ordinances. That was my last straw. Yeah, it was really hard for me. It was really hard for me because I said to Keith, this is why I don't understand him not knowing. I said to him, no, and I mean it. He came home that day and I was having a panic attack. And I said, if something happened to you, these could be our kids because I'm part of that community. They're talking about me yeah, and they're talking about just kids. What are we doing? Anyway, I realized I had been more vocal and we had, it turned out in 2018, he had just been really unhappy and I, I could tell. And I finally said something to him and he said, yeah, I've just been unhappy for the last five years and haven't known how to tell you. That's hard. And I was like, am I a monster? Why can't, I thought we were supposed to be able to tell each other everything. And what do you mean you've been unhappy about who we've become and where we've gone? That's how do we live this life? How have, how have I been living thinking and telling everyone it used to bug Michelle. She would say all the time, I used to tell everyone like I'm married to this amazing man who I don't deserve because he puts up with all my shenanigans. And it turns out that at home he was miserable and I don't want to make you miserable. Right? Like that's terrible. Well, I, I wish that there were more conversations around the fact that we're continually changing as human beings throughout our entire lives. And just because at 19, maybe you are compatible with someone doesn't mean that you have both grown and changed in the same ways that at 45, you're compatible with the same person. And why can't it but be okay right. to lovingly release each other? Right. And Every move into year. another relationship. And I know that's a whole different conversation, but it plays into this. It's the same conversation because every year after I started being involved with ordained women and things got harder for us with church and we weren't who we thought we would be on our anniversary every year, I would sob and cry and apologize to him for not being who I promised him I would be when we got married. And every year he would tell me I that that's not true and that he was fine. And then it just turned out that he just didn't know how to have that conversation because yeah. being comfortable well, him was easier than this has to go back to toxic masculinity again, because men in patriarchal cultures are not provided with the tools and the ability to express emotion and be vulnerable. Yeah. They're supposed to always be strong. And okay. And if an emotion comes out, the ones that are acceptable for men are aggression and anger and assertiveness and, you know, like power dominant yeah. emotions. And that's and I it. rarely, rarely saw things like that, but those were the things that started to come out. And that's why I said, there's something wrong here. We've got it. Well, it's okay it. up until we get really vulnerable yeah. because you can have a sweet, compassionate, tender person. My husband is this tender, loving, compassionate person. But to get really vulnerable is still not okay. It's interesting to me that inside our culture, it's perfectly acceptable. And I mean LDS culture. It's perfectly acceptable and common for men to cry while they bear their testimony. Which is when they're talking about spiritual things. Yeah. Or even when they give a blessing to their child or something. They can be emotional if it involves their priesthood. Yeah. But this was just a point where we just at no point, And we talked about, I looked at him and I said, we talked about every single thing. I don't understand how this, I don't understand how we got here. 
he didn't understand how we got to certain places I didn't understand. And so, yeah, 2018 was when my marriage started breaking up. And then in 2019, we separated, three of my grandparents died and I had the worst possible year I could ever imagine. I had to keep working, keep taking care of my kids. It was terrible. And then our divorce was finalized in November. My parents stopped talking to me right after Thanksgiving and even spent (laughs) the first Christmas after I got divorced. I spent, this is so Mormon, I spent drinking and um, (laughs) waiting for my painkillers to kick in while I ate raw cookie dough and watched Doctor Who (laughs) while my kids were with my parents or were with their dad at his parents' house. And it turned out my parents were there with them. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I, I lost. So 2019, everybody talked about how 2020 with the quarantine was so awful. (laughs) And I was like, I would take eight 2020s before I ever relived 2019 again. I think the same thing about 2018. (laughs) Yeah. 2020 is nothing, bitches. You don't know. You're like toilet paper. You're upset about missing toilet paper. You talk to us before you have a problem with your (laughs) staying home from work. Anyway, so 2020 was the year that I kind of, I started back at therapy. We had gone to therapy that year before, but I went individually a lot more. And I messed up some of my finances by just shopping on Amazon during the quarantine, just because all of a sudden... I had been alone or I was alone after being with someone for 25 years and was alone. So alone because I was quarantined. Yeah. Why do you think Amazon stocks have done so well? (laughs) No kidding. Like, Oh my God. Like I am sure so many people are like me and all of a sudden credit card debt exists for the first time because you did this thing. Right. Um, my problem was Barnes and Noble. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was buying books on Amazon. Let's be real. (laughs) And my my authentic Freddie Mercury yellow leather jacket. jacket, That's amazing. Um, we're going to need a picture of that, (laughs) but it's hot. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I was attracted to women. (laughs) (laughs) This might make you be (laughs) the nice fangirling. By the end of 2020, I had decided like, I'm going to try online dating. It took me a year and a half. I'm going to try this. And the first time I got a response from a person, because at first I said I was interested in men and women. The first time I got a response from a person, it was a man. And I threw my phone across the room. I was like, ew, (laughs) no. And that was when I realized, oh, oh, I don't talk to men. That's interesting. (laughs) I gave it a couple more tries. And with three different men talking to them online. I was very open and said, I have a chronic illness. It is degenerative. I use a cane and three different dudes, poof, ghosted, disappeared, stopped talking to me. And I was like, well, okay. So clearly I cannot be open with dudes and I'm not in it for for that. And I stopped dating again for like six months. I went on a vacation. My ex and I took our kids on a two week vacation. And I remembered all the reasons we are exes and friends only. And the day I got back, I signed up for Facebook dating and got a message from her from charity and was oh, like, charity. We to just like slide right in I there. Slid right in there. Slid right in there. Boom. I did. But the <laughs> no thing, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're not a dude. <laughs> yeah. So funny. <laughs> The reason I mentioned that is because within three days, yeah, I had said like, 
okay, there's something you need to know about me. And I'm going to tell you this and it's sent other people running. And if you want to say goodbye, that's fine. Join me next week for the next part of the episode with Charity and Deb as we talk about how love wins.